0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Trying to Catch the Wind, Memoir of a Love That Was More Than Love. And the author is Joseph N. Ferry, and Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. What a great story, your story, uh... All about your first love and how that love uh, came in and out of your life. We'll find out the details in a moment. Uh, Very emotional and I think everyone's dream to have this kind of love. This book is the story of my first and greatest love, you say, which had the hands of fate all over it. One of the most fabulous and beautiful night of our first date after realizing... We had each found our soulmate. We were nearly killed by a drunk driver as we were riding home on my motorcycle. So that's the way the book begins, too, uh, that beautiful, beautiful night riding together on your little uh, motorcycle, uh, just kind of the perfect setting uh, in many, many ways. But before we get into the details, why did you decide to go uh, after all these years to write this book?
2: Well,
3: I actually started writing something else uh, back in 2008. I uh, I was winding down a, a career in advertising, and it was on a beach in Barbados, and I just had this, this desire, this incredible desire to write uh, about some of my experiences. And I actually started writing a book about my early childhood on the old west side of Buffalo with lots of colorful characters. But By the end of the first day, my writing somehow moved towards this relationship, which had a monumental effect on my life. And for the next two weeks, while I was in Barbados, I wrote day and night. And I ended up writing 150 pages of what would become trying to catch the wind. And I just found myself, uh, you know, and as I wrote about it, it was kind of a catharsis because... This relationship and the loss of this relationship has kind of been a shadow throughout my entire life. I had suppressed it, but once I allowed myself to start writing, I ended up writing, uh, you know, the beginning of this book, which took a bunch of years to write because I was working fifty-five hours in advertising a week, and uh, it became it became my my greatest uh, joy outside of my job was to write this story. And I've worked on it uh, in Spain. I've worked on it in Barbados. I actually worked on it when I was in Hawaii. Uh, and finally, when I left my full-time job, I was able to really uh, go back and really start to do uh, revision, which is really an important part of the writing process. Uh, I had some great uh, inspiration and some instruction from Lucia Graves, whose father was the poet Robert Graves. I became friends with her uh a number of years ago, and uh, she's a great author as well. And so she gave me some really good advice, and that's you know how the story got. Uh, it just captured my imagination, and to this day, it's it's in my head all the time. And I I really uh, try to uh, capture some of the passion of that story. Which, by the way, I cannot believe uh, how much it still affects me when I when I you know when I just stop and think about it.
1: You were both 17, Marilyn and you, and it, was it love at first sight?
3: I, it's, uh, we, there was a dance, uh, weekly dance. It was the uh, social place for teenagers. It was called Mount Major Hall. And I had been going there for three years. It was my third year going there. And the very first night that Marilyn and her friend Olga decided to see what it was all about, she, she came to the dance hall. And uh, I spotted her, and from the moment I saw her, I knew there was something great that was going to happen. Her first and only visit to Mount Major ended up being the last time I would ever go to Mount Major, because the very next week is when we went on our first date, and the story begins.
1: The story begins with this fateful ride on the motorcycle. Tell us a little bit about what happened.
3: Well... We, we left the beach, and, and the way the story starts, I just wanted to, you know, to begin the story uh, with our ride back home after we had had this fantastic date. I don't give any details about the date because that's coming later. But we were riding home, and I still can remember the feeling I had. Now, being on a motorcycle, and in those days it, we didn't have to wear helmets, being on a motorcycle... Uh, the person on the back had to hold on to, and I could feel her arms around me, and it was almost like I was dreaming. Except I can feel, tangibly feel, her holding me, and I was at the highest point of uh, my life, and and she was as well. And so we we were heading down a almost an abandoned road to get home, and we just for no apparent reason just followed a, a side road. And along that side road, uh, a drunk driver came out of a, a bar onto our narrow road. He came directly at us, and I was able to avoid most of his car by getting on the right shoulder. Marilyn, of course, she had her hands around me. Her head was facing to the right. She didn't see it coming, and she was struck by this speeding Mustang. And so we were, in a way, as I say, and i I cannot believe it myself. If we had been in a car, it would have been a head-on crash, and our night and our lives would have ended that that evening. Uh, fortunately, we were on a motorcycle, and fortunately, I was able to get far enough over uh, so we basically survived because we were on a motorcycle. That's another one of those crazy uh you know things I believe that fate had a hand in.
1: Did you ever marry?
3: Did we get married? No. We we did get engaged, and we were engaged for a, a couple years, um, but our plans were were changed by circumstances, and and then you know, that's what the book is about, especially the ending.
1: Right. Well, I think everyone dreams of you know romantic love. It transcends time and cultures, as you say, and uh, you know, it's sub themes for searching for the meaning in one's personal life. It's Kind of everyone wants that and wants to keep it forever, and I guess it it's the kind of thing that has left such an imprint on your mind and heart. That's why you've written your book.
3: Yeah, it was extraordinary. And, uh, you know, I, I one of the other things that I think, uh, Steve, that you do as you get older, uh, you know, people you know die. You know, the, the older generation dies off actually more and more rapidly as you get older and older obviously but then you start losing friends too and at that point at some point you start to look back to evaluate your life to to look at the highs and lows of your life and to you know compare where you are to what you dreamt and i did that and of course my greatest disappointment was that relationship not working out and by doing that kind of um uh, soul, soul searching, I was able to, uh, to realize a lot of things. Uh, number one, uh, perhaps, you know, why I never married until later in life. And, uh, you know, it was a great disappointment to lose her. And I never really envisioned anyone having my children but her. And so afterwards, even though I searched and had numerous relationships, I never, I never, uh, really, uh, Found anybody to replace her? That's really the long and short of it.
1: You used many short quotes of contemporary songs of the time period. Why did you choose those particular songs?
3: Well, like I like I explained at one point in the book, uh, we have a people have a, a, a way of connecting events in their lives to music of the time. Uh, sometimes they're thematically connected. Sometimes. There's no thematic connection whatsoever, but when you hear a song, all of a sudden you think of a certain person or an event. The songs that I used as I was writing the book, um, I kept hearing these different songs in my life. Of course, the most important one was Catch the Wind by Donovan Leach. Uh, That song uh, played such a major role in my life. and In fact, during the course of getting this book published, I made contact with Donovan. I got permission to use that. I went to see him in London. Uh, he he. We corresponded through email. Uh, it, it was just an amazing thing. But the songs, every song that I mentioned, most of them are thematically connected. Uh, some are comical, like uh, the Name Game, <laughs> which was by Shirley Ellis. It was just kind of oh awesome. yes,
1: yeah.
3: <laughs> it, was, it was a silly song, but yes. there's a free episode in the story where the Name Game. I had a girlfriend at, this was before Maryland, I had a girlfriend who was very pretty, but very, you know, kind of uh, ditzy. And she called me at my home one time to tell me about this great new song that she just loved. And she started singing The Name Game over the telephone. And I was like so unbelievably, like, not interested. I put the phone down. I went to use the laboratory, (laughs) I came back and she still was singing the song. And it just, you know, it was one of those relationships that, you know, just couldn't stick. Even though she was attractive to me physically, I needed somebody that was more than the name game, you know. So, but the music and the story, every song has a correlation to events in the story. And most of them are stamped time-wise to the exact time of the story.
1: So this time period of the book is what?
3: Well, it, it, you know, obviously 1965. Basically, 19, the core of the story is 1965 uh, through 1967. The Summer of Love is when Marilyn and I, uh, I lost her. And, but there are events afterwards that, uh, you know, because I lost her, I was able to go on an odyssey. Uh, through education, uh, traveling, I went to all the festivals, I met incredible people. But basically the story, the story, the core of the story is between 1965 and 1967. And then there's some additional things that happen afterwards, and it concludes, the whole thing concludes uh, uh, 1971, and then there's a brief uh, uh, encounter in 1974, and then that's it. That's the end of it.
4: Have, no you,
1: have you ever had any contact with her since the end of the story?
3: Yes, I have. Uh, when I w- was writing it, I decided, uh, partly because I was worried about if something happened to me or something happened to her, how terrible it would be that you know the story wouldn't be known. And I decided, uh, I, I actually found out that she lived out of the city. She lives about 150 miles away and is married, I decided that I needed to contact her to let her know I was writing this story and that uh, uh, I just I just needed to her to know that. The thought of her finding out about this story, you know, after I had written it, it just I just couldn't do that to her. I can't imagine someone writes a story about you and then all of a sudden you find out that you're the center of a story. I mean, how cool would that be? And I absolutely didn't want to do that. And I, I wrote her a long letter I had a mutual friend, a, a good friend of mine, contact her, and she said to this friend, Debbie, she said, Why this story? Why now after all these years? And it was like the greatest question, as she was so brilliant when she was young, she's still brilliant. And I said, Yeah, all right, so I've got to explain that. And I wrote her an 11 page letter. But two things I wanted to let her know two things. I will never stop loving that young woman in my life and that we should be proud that we created a story that has lived beyond its time. And those two things, because, you know, people change. Uh, She may not be anything like the young woman that I was in love with. I happen to think I'm just as nutty and crazy as I was when I was a kid, Uh, full of passion. I just, you know, most people, uh, my friend's mother used to say that I was vaccinated with a Victrola needle, so I assumed that I talked too much. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, how did she respond?
3: Uh, in the letter, I told her I know that her life is probably happy and content, and then I'm a ghost from the past. And I told her I would understand if she didn't respond. And uh, thus far, I had no response. I'm just, I'm going to be sending her a copy of the book with another letter and something that Donovan gave uh, to her. And I so. so
1: what does your family? What does your family think about the book?
3: Um, well, my, both my parents are dead. My father doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, you know, shine in the book, let's say. My mother, this is a tribute to her uh, and her courage. She would have loved it. She's also dead. Uh, my one sister that I, uh, uh, lost a few years ago, I had read part of the book to her and she loved it. She, um, she loved where it was at that stage, um, but the rest of my family, I don't know. Uh, I, I, you know, people, the problem is that you don't, people are afraid to tell you what they really think. And I tell people, listen, I've got thick skin. You don't like it? Tell me. I mean, I, I would understand, but people always pull their punches or if they don't understand something, they won't ask. So I have no idea. And you know what? I wrote it. I wrote it because I needed to, to, you know, to free myself of this, uh, this story. Uh, it turns out that it, I'm not free of it anymore. It's still part of me.
1: It is still part of you, and you're sharing it with the world. The title of the book, Trying to Catch the Wind, uh, there's a very special poem in it. Tell us about why you chose that poem.
3: Well, to be honest with you, I wrote two poems. Uh, I've written poetry for most of my adult life, uh, but this the two poems, the poem that you see on the, on, in the book, was actually written for no other reason than, you know, kind of a reflection for myself. And at one point, um, uh, Tracy Anderson asked me if I had any additional information for the cover, and I thought, you know what, I wrote this poem, and and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, because sometimes it's hard to judge your own work. I said, I'll send it to you, but if it's not good, if you don't think it's, you know, has any validity, let me know, because I, again, I got good thick skin. I didn't write it to, you know, to have it published, but she, I sent it to her, and it turns out that she liked it, and I actually, as I look at it, I think it's really, you know, really kind of captures the sentiment of uh, this whole book, and it and it just, you know, again, where did it come from? It came from inside. I don't know why. Uh, the other poem, which I haven't shared at all, is, is another poem, but it's a poem to Marilyn, which... If the only person I would actually show it to would be her if she wanted it, but I don't think she will. I mean, I, I you know, again, I'm a ghost of the past. I don't want to disrupt her life or let her, you know, uh, doubt what she has in her life now. But I do know that, uh, you know, this love uh, for some reason just is there and will always be there.
1: We've been listening to Joseph N. Ferry. He is the author of his book, Trying to Catch the Wind, Memoir of a Love That Was More Than Love. Joe, tell us how to get your book.
3: Well, it's available at iUniverse. It's also available at uh, uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. At this point, those are the the sources of where you can get the book.
1: Well, thank you so much, Joe, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure.
5: Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and beyond with Pete Dix.
4: Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for.
0: To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Blind Revenge, and the author is Bob Tate. And Bob joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bob. Good morning. Great to have you with us, boy. This is a mind-bender of uh, this, unfortunately, maybe it could really happen in today's scientific world, splitting embryos and creating life in a new and unusual way. But you say blind revenge is that kind of a story that takes place in the most beautiful natural setting in the world. It combines science with human conflict. The distinguishing theme of the book is the bizarre use of embryo splitting and embryo transplants by a demented father to extract revenge on his own flesh and blood. So we'll get That's into a very good way to put it. <laughs> We'll get into the details of what all that means in a moment. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself, Bob, uh, your background and why you wrote
5: the book. Well, I'm a retired educator, and I've always had a fantasy of writing my own book. As a youth, I would sit uh, in the cornfields of southern Utah, irrigating fields, reading Luke Short novels, thinking of what I would do if I were doing the writing. And so I've had a dream to write have loved uh, the western setting, I was born obviously in the west and so um, uh, when I c- completed my stint as an educator, incidentally I taught science and that's where the genetics come in. I taught uh, anatomy and physiology and became fascinated with what genetics could do and what we can do with uh, with that part of science. So. Uh, Learning those things and experiencing that and taking my desire to write, I launched uh, the book based on on what I thought would be a fascinating story.
1: Well, it's that kind of story you could see on the big screen someday, that's for sure. Uh, Tell us about Julian Reichert and how he's on the verge of becoming an heir to this massive cattle empire, but there's a twist here that his father is trying to regain control of the ranch.
5: Julian is, uh, of course, Rusty's son, and uh, the Rikert family built this huge cattle empire over the years, and Rusty became the heir. Unfortunately, Julian did something that made his father Rusty angry in that he married a Mexican woman, and Rusty had a hate for the Mexican people as a result of some things that happened in his childhood. So when Julian married Amy, the beautiful Mexican woman, Rusty vowed that he would take the ranch back. And so he did that or tried to do that uh, in the courts. That failed. He then came up with a plan where he could use his knowledge of embryo splitting that he'd learned through Julian and he could bring a long-lost sister into the mix, a sister that Julian knew as a young child, but that sister died, and then along comes out of nowhere another sister that Julian knows nothing about, and this is where the genetic engineering portion comes into the plot. So
1: And that sister uh, looks exactly like his sister that had died, Angeline.
5: That's correct. So he's stunned when he ends up in the courtroom seeing this sister that comes out of nowhere that he knew died 30 years before. And that's, that's where the plot thickens, so to speak. Uh, where did she come from and uh, how did she get where she is?
1: And, of course, uh, this kind of story has to ha- be about greed and money and power and control.
5: Angeline has been deceived over the years and that's why she comes in and that's where the term blind revenge comes in that she has been told by her father uh, as he had raised her something that was not true and so that's where the term blind revenge comes in and she's after him uh, to get back what she believes is rightfully hers and there is some additional side plots that come in that involve greed and power and money, uh, that's exactly correct.
1: Uh, We're talking about millions of barrels of oil hidden away in, of course, the shale deposits on the Diamond T. It's a great ranch, a cattle empire, but there's uh, black gold under that incredible
5: ranch. (laughs) Well, and one of the things that was fascinating to me, I've always had a desire to, uh, through my study of science, for the human race to manage the beautiful natural resources we have. I think we have a balance between using the resources we have for the benefit of mankind as opposed to completely uh, preserving them. And that has to be, we've got to work through that. We've got to learn to use the great vast natural resources that we have in a way to benefit mankind. Um, the technology today, for example, in uh, retorting oil from shale and getting oil from the ground, the technology has advanced to the point that I believe we have eliminated a lot of the concerns we have about destroying the environment, which I adamantly feel we need to be careful about doing. And that comes out in the story as Julian resists letting people into the Diamond tea to mine the shale because he does not want the... Um, the environment be destroyed, but on the same token, he understands that we've gotten to a point where we can do that and still be okay.
1: And, of course, with that kind of attitude, that places him in a lot of danger.
5: He has his life, uh, two attempts on his life, and, yeah, it, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it um, demonstrates that there are those who will go to whatever lengths to get, uh, to get power and money.
1: And we all know that, unfortunately, often those we love, those are the closest to us. Uh, Obviously, there can be violations of that trust, and that's a theme in your book.
5: That's correct. Um, Angeline goes through a transformation when she learns the truth, and uh, it sets the point that, yes, even those that we love the most can sometimes betray us or um, disappoint us Um, it gets to the point where we realize and as I point out as the story unfolds that family really is important and uh, when family disappoints us then that can be a difficult uh, challenge that we face but Angeline eventually works through that.
1: Well we're talking about this you know this gray area or maybe a dark area between science fiction and reality of how close or you know how close are we to doing something like this this genetic
5: engineering well i think of it as the ability we have to create a superior race something like uh, you know the master deceiver hitler tried to do the use of a gene called myostatin could do that myostatin is a gene that inhibits muscle growth and when the myostatin gene mutates muscle mass increases and one of the ideas in blind revenge is that cattle breeders use a myostatin blocker to increase uh, the size of of, uh, animals that they market conceivably someone could do that in the human race. In fact, weightlifters use a myostatin blocker to increase their own muscle mass. And so a a theory and this actually is an idea that I have for a second novel is that a superior race could be created through genetic manipulation by blocking the myostatin gene in humans, creating a massive human race. And so we have the potential through genetic manipulation understanding of the genome project, um, through understanding of embryo splitting and transplanting to do some pretty dramatic uh, things in today's world. Uh, and I think uh, there has to be some sort of control legislatively to ensure that we're careful with what we do.
1: Tell us about the Fremont Indians, the part they play in the, in the plot. One of the
5: things that's fascinating about the setting, and I love the setting, uh, my story takes a trip through what I've indicated is one of the most beautiful spots in the in the world, in southwestern Utah and or southeastern Utah in southwestern Colorado, uh, home of the Anasazi and the Fremont Indians. Um, as uh, Julian rides into that setting with his grandfather, he and the sister Angeline that he knew as a young boy, uh, the. Fremont Indians who had inhabited the mountains and canyons of part of the Diamond T, a race that just kind of mysteriously disappeared. Um, what, of, what I have seen and have experienced in people who live in the Grand Staircase is the disappointment that some of those ruins have been looted and we need to preserve them. But uh, there's a, quite a bit of mystery surrounding the Fremont Indians and why they disappeared.
1: Now, this kind of a story, a lot of challenges in writing it, uh, you know, how, how did you develop your skills to do
5: this? You know, as I mentioned, uh, I am a science teacher, and one of my friends who read the book after I had written it looked at it and said, Bob Tate wrote this? He's a science teacher. He's not a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to do some training. I, did, I took some online courses. I uh, bought all the books I could find, um, Wrote, uh, read about uh, how to do create point of view, uh, the voice in the book. Uh, but it all boils down to I think I've had over the years a natural penchant f- pension for being able to put word into print. And so coupling that with the skills I had to learn to frame and form a book uh, took some time and uh, some advice from people who had done writing and, or who had written. So it was a process that took me some time to develop.
1: Any other characters that would stand out that would give us a little insight in the overall plot?
5: Well, Elliot uh, is the man that Angeline marries and uh, he's a character who kind of lo- loses his way. He gets involved in the desire for immense wealth and, and as a result uh, betrays his trust again uh, with Angeline and ends up becoming involved in a conspiracy to kill her and uh, so what happens is Angeline now becomes betrayed by the two most important people in her life her father and the man she marries and so Elliot plays a significant role and uh, of course the other people who are involved in Elliot's attempts to become wealthy uh, Dennis Leachie uh, a name that I picked uh, intentionally because Dennis Leachy is really a leech. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the people that Elliot gets involved with uh, are a part of that as well in a conspiracy to access the shale on the Diamond T.
1: Any closing thoughts, Bob?
5: Well, just that uh, for people who have a desire to to write and uh, everyone has a story to tell, I believe. Uh, live your dream. Do what it takes. Uh, it's, it's work. You write, you edit, you rewrite, you edit, you reframe. Uh, but I think everyone has a story to tell, and if you uh, live uh, and follow through on that, live your dream. As I say in my signings, saddle up and follow your dreams. It's, uh, it's a fun ride, and uh, for those who are interested in Blind Revenge, you'll enjoy the setting as much as you will enjoy the story.
1: We've been listening to Bob Tate. He's the author of his book, Blind Revenge. Bob, tell us how to get your book.
5: The uh, book, Blind Revenge, is available on all major booksellers, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. It can be downloaded electronically uh, as well as through any any major bookseller.
1: Thank you so much, Bob, for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
5: And you can go to BobTateAuthor.com. BobTateAuthor.com.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after
4: these messages.
3: Show me the money!
4: Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on TogiNet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world, and she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LBL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's intelligent investing with Pam Otten on TogiNet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, or 3 Central on TogiNet.com.
0: To iUniverse Radio
1: with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Everyday Miracles. Tales of Life Beyond Life. And the author is Bonnie Rega. And Bonnie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bonnie.
2: Hello, how are you?
1: Well, you're gonna share some fascinating true life stories because you are a hospice chaplain a spiritual midwife as you call yourself we'll learn more about that in a moment but let me read what you've written about your book you say everyday people experience everyday miracles that prove that the eternal soul exists before during and after life these uplifting comforting personal stories come from my hospice patients, their families, friends, and from me. So, personal experiences as well as stories from others.
2: That's right. And the common denominator, I think, is love. What connects us is love for one another. And that love transcends being in a physical body.
1: Exactly. So, how did you get involved in being a hospice chaplain?
2: Well, I had a longing to do this, and uh, the way the universe works or God works, uh, I had this longing, and I came to visit my daughter in Chicago. I was living in Peoria at the time, and we went to a 4th of July picnic, a church picnic, and we sat next to this woman that I had seen at various functions when I'd come in but never had met her, and she said, What do you do? And I told her, I was teaching at the time, and she said, and I said, What do you do? And she said, I, um, I run a hospice at a local hospital. I said, Really? I've always wanted to be a hospice chaplain. She said, Funny you should say that. We have an opening. And that's how I started hmm. in hospice. Mm-hmm. Just that wonderful coincidence, or what I call God incidence.
1: Exactly. So, hospice. Basically, people are given how long to die, I mean, when they're brought into hospice. Is it a varying amount, I'm sure?
2: No. Generally, it's um, the criteria, because it's set by Medicare, is is that you have to have a six-month or less prognosis. Okay. Now, because some people get such good care in hospice, (laughs) they last a lot longer than that, Mm -hmm. because hospice essentially... Uh, takes care of pain management. It prevents them from experiencing excessive pain. And because people are made comfortable, they're able to live longer Mm -hmm. and more productively.
1: So your book, uh, as you write, illustrates the many different ways souls choose to communicate with us. Yes. So tell us about some of the different ways that Those who have passed on, communicate.
2: Well, as I began gathering these stories, I was just gathering them, and and they were delightful, and I would write them down, and I would share them with other patients, and the patients were comforted by them. And what I discovered as I was writing them down is that they fell into categories. So some people experience information through dreams, others through visitations, and I can give you examples of these, and others uh, through the materialization of spirit, which I call embodiment, where they come through and they materialize one way or another, Mm. and others are very good at manipulating matter. They move things, um, uh, they make things happen for the people who are praying for them, and then, uh, finally, God and some goddesses and other archetypes, angels, etc., appear in, uh, people's visions. So, those are the basic categories. And then I also talk about how people let go, because that is done in a myriad of ways. People use, uh, the river as a metaphor, crossing the river. And by the way, these are cross-cultural. These are not just American stories. I've read them and researched them all around the world. And so music is a very powerful way for people to communicate. And um, one man had a vision of a beautiful golden chariot. And he kept saying to his son, I want you to get me a ticket on that chariot. And his son said, what chariot? (laughs) And he said, that one right there. And then he lapsed into a coma. And then when he awoke, just before he died, he put his hands out, and he said, Oh, you got me the ticket. You got me the ticket. It's a beautiful golden chariot. And then he died. Hmm. So his son said, Well, he got the chariot he wanted. So people cross over in different ways. In as many ways as there are imaginations, um, people create a way to, to make that passage
1: Most people, when you, of course, talk about death, uh, most people fear death. Uh, uh, Obviously, you've been uh, with many, many who have gone through that door, as I call it. What do you think death feels like?
2: Well, I I have to tell you, I have two people who died and came back and then died again. And both of them, and they didn't know each other. They're from different parts of the country. um, Both of them said, oh, Dying is so easy. You take one breath in this body and the next breath in the healthy body. Hmm. Isn't that exquisite? That
1: is. That's very comforting, isn't it?
2: Yes. So we're more concerned about it than they are. They just do it. In the same way that we come into this earth with the first breath, we exit it on the last breath. Hmm. And and we've only borrowed the body, you see. it's, It's the spirit, the soul comes in borrows the body, and when the life is over, it leaves the body and continues.
1: What makes you believe that people maintain their personalities after death?
2: Well, I've had some experiences personally, so I can speak to that. Uh, One of my cousins died suddenly at 58 years old, and before she died, we had another relative who passed. And before she died, my cousin Joni said to me, I don't want to die like that. I don't want to die in agony. She said, I want to just roll over in my bed and die. And she and her husband were driving up to Virginia to visit their son, and that's exactly what she did. He said what she did was she gave a long sigh in her sleep. She rolled over, Mm. and she died. So she planned that. But here's the piece that I experienced. I didn't know she was dead. I was back in Peoria. She was in Florida. And um, I couldn't sleep. So I turned on the TV and fell asleep. And we had been discussing my aunt, who couldn't sleep for the same reason she had lost a daughter. And when we had discussed her, I said, don't worry about the fact that she falls asleep to the TV. Um, She'll get over it. It's just that she's new in her grief, and that's her coping mechanism. Well, the morning that she died, and it was right around the same time, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I awoke, but I was still in that half-asleep state, and Joni was in my bedroom in Peoria. And she said, teasingly, because I had turned on the TV, you do it too. And I said, oh, I only do it once in a while, and then I opened my eyes and realized she can't possibly be in my bedroom. (laughs) She's on her way to Virginia. Mm. I tried to get hold of her husband. I couldn't the next day. I couldn't get my aunt either. And then the day after that, her sister called me to tell me she had passed Mm. that morning around 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm. So, I mean, that's just one story. That's my personal story. There are other stories in the book that speak to that as well.
1: So these embodiments, this materialization of spirit, is that common?
2: No, that is not common. I suspect, I don't know, you know, I suspect you have to be uh, pretty adept at handling matter from the other side in order to do that. How... You completely refashion your body. You know, we're told that Christ did that, right? Mm hmm And Mary did not, Mary Magdalene didn't recognize him at first. Right. And I suspect it's because he was in his eternal body. It's not the same as the physical body. You know, it's, it's full of light. You have an eternal countenance, let's say, or an eternal face, and that's how you fashion the body. But we're not all as adept as this, as Christ was, clearly. Right. So, um, there's one story in the book about a man who had been in a wheelchair all his life, and he died very young, in his 40s. And he was, before he died, he knew he was dying. He told his two friends that he would come back and use electricity to communicate with them, because that's what most people do. And, um, after the funeral, each woman went back to her own house. They lived in separate houses, the sisters. And both of them had, when they flipped on the lights, had their electri- electricity blow out. Can you imagine that? So one sister called the other and she said, you're not going to believe what happened. Mike, he did turn off my electricity. <laughs> and the other sister said, he turned off mine too. <laughs> and I said, you know what, I'm writing a story about this. We were, by the way, sitting vigil with their mother when they told me this story. And I said, can I use this in a book that I'm writing? And they said, yeah, but that's not the end of the story. I said, well, how did it end? She said, the one who was his best friend. She had gone all through school with him. She said, he appeared the next day in my living room, dining room. There's a separate doorway between the two. And she said, he appeared in his um, wheelchair, and he was solid, and she said, Mike, what are you doing? We saw you get buried yesterday. You're dead. He said, oh, he was one of the ones that said, dying is so easy. You take one breath in this body and the next breath in the healthy body, and then he winked out. Literally, she said he disappeared, and I said, did he look like a ghost? She said, no, he was as solid as you are. Hmm. So uh, those are just several of the stories that are in the book.
1: Now, often people talk about letting go, crossing over. You've got a whole chapter on that.
2: Uh, Yes, I do devote a chapter on that. And again, it has to do with how people leave. So one person, as I say, uh, used his golden chariot. Other people have used the river. They cross the river, and they appear in dreams to loving relatives or friends, and they, there's a short river between them. And they say, oh, it's good to see you or whatever. And then they say, oh, I'll, I'll come over. I'll cross that river. I did that with my mother, in fact, in a dream. And what we heard, what she said was, no, no, you can't cross the river. It's not your time. And people have that dream over and over again, Cross-culturally, the river seems to be a big um, metaphor, let's say, uh, for crossing over. And others take planes, trains, automobiles, you know, whatever conveyance they can think of occurs in the dreams. Oh, and then one other thing I'd like to mention is that often loved ones are there to greet you when you're passing. And sometimes you didn't even know they were dead. You know, one man was saying, um, oh, oh, Mary's in the room. And his wife said, she can't be in the room. He said, she's in the room. And then he died. And then she found out later that his sister, who had been in another nursing home, had just died Mm. at the same time. So information gets sent in, in these. I'm not making these stories up, and neither are other people. They get information. Uh, that they couldn't have had otherwise,
1: now how do these stories fit in with the latest theories physics, metaphysics
2: well, it's so interesting to me. I feel like the scientists are finally catching up with the metaphysicians. you know the, physis- the physics are professors and and um, physics physicists are catching up with these um, the metaphysicians who've been talking about this stuff for thousands and thousands of years, and suddenly we're being told about multiple universes and multiple planes, and um, they're catching up. I think that some of what they're discussing, for instance, they talk about the, um, the connectedness of all things on the sub-sub-sub-atomic level. Well, I think the glue that connects us all, they call it by other names, is the love of the divine. The divine essence adores us, loves us, and through this love we're given life, we're given these experiences. And, um, and that's what the physicists are now coming up with. I love it. They have never yet proved that it happens, but a lot of the theoreticians are saying that uh, we are connected by little vibrating strings that are so tiny, of course, there's no way to measure them. And each string vibrates at a different level. But that is the connector of everything from the largest to the smallest things in the universe, including ourselves. And I say that is the love that holds us all together. It's what the hippies called vibes. (laughs) Those are the vibrations that connect us.
1: We've been listening to Bonnie Rega. She is the author of her book, Everyday Miracles, Tales of Life Beyond Life. Bonnie, tell us how to get your book.
2: Well, you go to the web, to iUniverse.com, and just put in my name, and uh, you will be guided to how you can find me. Uh, Or you can go to your local bookstore and tell them to do the same, and they will order it.
1: And Rega is spelled R-E-G-A for everyone. Bonnie Rega. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. You are welcome.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.